Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing to work our way through the gospel narrative. This is Gospels Part 85. Man, last week, a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of miraculous stuff happened with Jesus and his ministry. Uh, The week before last, he was harping on the people about the need for repentance and judgment is coming. The, The time is drawing near for their opportunity to accept the kingdom uh, it was at hand and people came to him about these examples of bad things happening to certain people dying whether it was in the in the temple or a, t- a tower of Siloam falling on them and kind of using that to say like you know we're, we're not sin- we don't have this sinful state like those people do uh, that's causing destruction to happen to them and but again, Jesus just has the perfect response to be like, it's it's going to be worse for you uh, because you're not repenting. And let me just give you some truth. Like, like what happened to those people isn't a direct result of their sinfulness, uh, which is just a really great reminder. Um, he then went from there to the parable about the fig tree. Again, more kingdom imagery about um, Jesus, like as the the vine dresser with the vine, which is Israel, like wanting to be patient, give more time, like let's wait another year. Let, let me try to dig into it, invest in it, put fertilizer, manure around it to see if we can get uh, fruit to come. And if that doesn't happen, then the tree is going to be cut down. So. Again, showing the patience and mercy of God and and Jesus in that parable to show that like He's not just ready ready with the axe in the hand to chop things down. He's wanting to see fruit and change and progress in people's lives. Yeah. Um, then we went from there to the story of the woman who was uh, had a disabling spirit. She was bent over for eighteen years, and this was happening on the Sabbath, and Jesus was again addressing this misconception that it was somehow sinful that he was committing this Jewish crime of alleviating someone's suffering uh, non-life-threatening suffering on the Sabbath uh, by the very person the leader of the synagogue who had invited him to come teach and just that he's the Lord of the Sabbath he has the best perspective on how to use Sabbath and in this case it's violating it to uh, make someone's state of living better. Um, yeah. And then, well, let's see, did we... Oh, yeah. <laughs> we ended about going through the narrow door and, oh, man, Jesus using the parable of the master at the house and people coming and knocking and saying, man, I didn't know you. Like, you you got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you're missing out on the grand party of the kingdom. Yeah. And I mean, it is, it's, it's almost comical in a way. And it's so sad and scary because there are so many people who just, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're okay. And, and they have no idea 
who this God really is and what he wants from them and for them and all of that. It's just, it's a, I don't know, it's an interesting thing, but that's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) But let's keep going. We were in Luke. Luke's been telling quite a story. We're in chapter 13. Uh, We made it up to verse 31. So we're going to read verses 31 through 35. See what he's going to talk about here. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Interesting. So, think about this. It's kind of Pharisees to the rescue. (gasps) Jesus' rescue. Hey, you better get out of here. Herod's going to try to kill you. Pharisees. Well, for some reason, people, they they even want to make Pharisees the bad guys here, too. As if maybe somehow they're in cahoots with Herod or something. Now, I'll admit, we don't know their motives. and, And maybe they were. Maybe they were in cahoots with Herod, but it's at least as reasonable to assume that they had no intended malice. They actually were trying to help him out, telling him, you you know what, you're in danger, get out of here. So, I mean, we just got to remember, there are many Pharisees who look positively on Jesus, and if Jesus was gonna drive Herod to do bad things, kind of like the same way that John the Baptist did in what uh, Herod did to John— Well, how much better would it be if Jesus just left to avoid it? So, you know, the Pharisees, I mean, there could have been just a plethora of motives, but it just, it doesn't have to be bad. Maybe they were just trying to help him. So anyway, this, it's kind of funny. This may be one of Jesus's strongest personal attacks. He calls Herod. Well, in the text, it just says fox. It's a she-fox. Now, on one hand, you could think about a fox, and you could say, well, you know, maybe we're just talking about the general idea of cunning and conniving, and and sometimes foxes even seem cowardly, you know, that kind of stuff. Maybe. Generally speaking, at least like from first century perspective, the foxes, they were like the opposite extreme of the lion. The lion was the king of beasts, and so the fox was like the lowest. But 
And this is kind of an interesting part. It may have also included a jab at Herod and the influence that Herodias had within Herod's household. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he called him a she-fox, maybe there's some, you know, connecting or dragging Herodias into this thing, whatever. So I don't know. It's kind of funny, but it's, I mean, this is a, this is a, a, this is a downright cut down. I mean, this is, this is real stuff. Either way, here we have it, this meek, gentle, humble savior of ours, unmoved in the face of a totally believable threat and actually like speaking back with, you know, a pretty sassy tone, if we could say that. You ever think about that, Samuel? Jesus getting sassy? I've heard it from time to time. Well, yeah, he's doing it now. But anyway, he says, go and tell that fox. And so, to be fair, I mean, if if this were meant, literally, well, then, I don't know, maybe they were in cahoots with Herod. Maybe he thinks they came from him and he's sending them back to him. Maybe. Uh, but it doesn't have to be taken that way. It could be. I mean, he didn't invite them to bring him the message. And so maybe he's just figuring, hey. You came to me uninvited, go to him uninvited. They could go to Herod the same way. If they dared, I wouldn't, but they might. You never know. We noted earlier that Herod, uh, you know, he was interested in seeing Jesus. If we go back, you can go take a peek at Luke chapter 9, verse 9. He kind of wanted to know what this Jesus was all about. Kind of wondered if maybe he was uh, John reincarnated or something like that. But Jesus... He, he he practically invites Herod to come and see him. And then he lays it out. For the next three days, I'm going to be doing stuff for you to see. I'm going to be here finishing up some work before I move on to the next phase of my mission. Now, question. Samuel, what do you think? Was Jesus talking? Was, was this three literal days? I mean... If you have just as we have just as much reason to think yes and no. Exactly. Yeah, we don't know, and uh, the answer is yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, we don't know. It is. It's. I, I don't know. I, it's probably more likely that it was just poetic language, and here's why. At least I'll have some reasoning. If we go back, look at Hosea. 6, you know what? Why don't you read this, Samuel? Hosea six two. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Yeah. And it's even easier to see in that context, uh, because it's Hosea, and he's, it, it's sort of, you almost feel like it's it's this, well, it, it, it is. It feels very poetic. It feels uh, nonspecific. After two days, and on the third day, it's just a way of expressing you know, it's a after a short period of time. It's just fancy way of saying that. So we could, though, I mean, we'd be blind if we didn't say, well, it's also, you know, there are those subtle hints about his upcoming death and resurrection, right? Two days, three days, right? We see this stuff. So, I mean, it's there, but he's probably just, it's probably just a little poetic talk. And then Jesus adds that, you know, he must soon... And again, he uses it again, the today, tomorrow, and the third day. 
he must continue his journey to Jerusalem. And so, I don't know, let's say in another sly move, he seems to know that it isn't Herod who will bring his end about. In fact, he pronounces that it will come at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem, just as with so many other prophets of the past. And Jesus, he even takes a little time to lament. You know, he laments that he's not being received. He's not being accepted, especially in Jerusalem. He longs to, to bring the comfort. He longs to bring the protection. You know, it's, he uses that imagery of the hen with her brood bringing in the chicks. It's, it's, that's the kingdom, the ingathering from the whole earth. But they're just not willing especially the leadership. And so, you know, Jesus, I'm sure, he's sad. Why not? He makes a couple of allusions uh, to Scripture, and they were probably not the easiest to pick up on, but Samuel, why don't you read these? Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. Now, when he says, my house, what's he talking about? I mean, would it be the temple? Yeah, it could be Israel as, a, as like a general term, but more specifically, it's more likely he's talking about the temple. And, and what's going to happen 40 years from now, Samuel? It's going to get demolished. Temple's going to get destroyed. So he's slipping this in there for them. Jeremiah had just complained back in, you know, Jeremiah chapter 12, He complained that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And God responds, you know, in so many words, that he suffers too. And so he's going to give his prized possession, Israel, over to his enemy. And so, you know, that's where you can also see the forsaken my house might be Israel type thing, whatever. He's going to give his prized possession over to his enemy. Now, God is in, in uh, it, it's almost like there's two separate trails running parallel here in the story. In one trail, God's about to do that again. That, that's what's going to happen because they're rejecting Jesus, that kind of thing. And in, in Psalm, uh, here's another one to read, Samuel, Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So that's the other trail of the story. God is preparing a future salvation. So it's like all at the same time, he's giving his prized possession over because Israel won't accept him. And at the same time, he is preparing the future salvation. I mean, what an awesome, amazing God and merciful. It's just so cool. Now, they may not see it now, But they will, uh, most certainly at his return. But God is weaving both storylines together at once. And we're going to see a lot of that when, you know, we read Paul's letters or whatever. He talks about different things. But it's that Gentile inclusion and the future salvation. The the, the Jews, they've been partially hardened, etc., etc. All those things. It's just amazing in hindsight. Such a cool thing. And here's Jesus talking about it right here. Hmm. 
Uh, and then he he mentions you will not see me, and you know in our in our chronological approach, I don't know this this it feels a little confusing. We just got to be honest there. Now we're about to switch to John and Jesus in Jerusalem, John the the Gospel, John and Jesus in Jerusalem. So I don't know this stuff that we're reading from Luke. Maybe it ought to be after some of this John stuff. Uh, it's hard to say, but whatever. We understand with our our chronological approach, we're we're not going for perfection because it's just it's too, that would be too hard. But you get the idea. It's it's kind of a little weird, uh, but it's all within a pretty narrow window. So maybe we accept it's not a perfect sequence, but we're all around the same time, and we are you know right at about the halfway point in between the fall festivals and the spring festivals. So anyway, there's that. Yeah, I I don't know why I had forgotten about this this part of Jesus's story with his language towards Herod. Um it I'm wrestling with it to some degree because I almost feel like there's um little hints of Messiah son of David that conquering victorious king that's like almost breaking through the surface a little bit with this language of how he's putting Herod in his place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not used to that because most of his ministry is Messiah, the suffering servant of Joseph. Right. Um, so uh, just interesting, you know, I mean, we, we can't know it's all speculative, but just to be in the mind of Jesus right here on what got him so riled up. Um, and like Paul host podcast host Paul uh, said about all these different and possible interpretations of Fox uh, here in this text it actually was a more commonly used Hebraic phrase than I realized um, and here's another plug um, I know we're like <laughs> 88 or 89 weeks into the podcast but if you didn't know already we have a PDF attached to every single episode with the notes that Paul prepares and every now and then like while we're recording we have different verses and other resources that popped up and um, I found an article by this um, ministry called the Jerusalem Perspective that goes through all of the like etymology of Fox and like they even give references to the Midrash and the oh. Talmud for the use of Fox and their conclusion was that like Jesus was in a sense he wasn't calling Herod like sly and cunning like how some people interpret Fox's behaviors to be mm-hmm. um, it's much more your second second interpretation of the difference between a lion and a fox like he he was belittling Herod to say like you're a small fry like yeah. like the the god and the king that I serve the lion like compared to him you're nothing so like your your threats are empty at, at this point which that's just man the audacity yeah that's super cool again there's that meek and mild savior mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it. But see, that's the thing, and we need to understand, I think there's such a good lesson in there that as as Christians, as disciples of this Christ, uh, we do need to be 
let's call it throttled by love and justice and mercy and all these kind of things. But it does not mean that you cannot stand up for what is right, that you can't be bold, that you can't even be, I don't know, slightly uh, aggressive or assertive. Maybe that's a better word, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you see it in Jesus himself. And, you know, come on. We all need to be super careful with it, but at the same time, we need to recognize it's okay, you know, to be a little manly on occasion, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a real thing. So, yeah, it's good stuff, Samuel. I, I haven't read that, so I'm looking forward to taking a peek <laughs> myself. That's good. All right, so this is, this is we're going to switch now from Luke back over to John. And you know, that's always, from John to John from anywhere is always a big change. So, let's see what's going on. Now we're in John chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Is there any part of you, Samuel, that imagines that could possibly stir some controversy? (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So from John's perspective, um, again, you know, he sort of helps us figure this out. We're just a few months out from Passover. So it's December-ish and it's Hanukkah. Uh, You may be familiar with that name. You may be familiar with Festival of Lights. That's another one. So, just briefly, it's an eight-day festival celebrating the rededication of the temple in 164 BC. Antiochus Epiphanes had defiled the temple, and the Jews reclaimed it, and they wanted to light the lamps. You know, they, they were supposed to burn continually, and they were out. And so, they wanted to light them. Problem was... They only had a one-day supply of usable oil. So, they lit lit the lamps anyway. And those lamps miraculously burned for eight days. Which just happened to be the amount of time it took them to properly prepare the new oil for the lamps. Hmm. So, it's kind of cool. Now, it's not part of the annual festival cycle that we see outlined in Scripture, 
but it's a very important part of Jewish history and, uh, uh, you know, an important festival for them. So it's kind of neat. So anyway, they've been, they, I guess they've been celebrating this for about 190 years-ish now, something like that, 190, 200, something like that. And Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. Again, is there anybody that's surprised by this? He loves being at the temple. And so, I mean, do you remember, do you not know that I must be in my father's house, right? Back in Luke 2, 49, right? Mm -hmm. That's where he expects to be. He's hanging out, and this is kind of cool. He's hanging out in Solomon's colonnade, which that's where the disciples are going to hang out a lot after Jesus' death and resurrection. That's where they are going to be awaiting his return. Now, obviously, it's been a couple thousand years, but they were expecting him to come back soon. That's where they were. And this is where the Eastern Gate is. It it kind of opens up into Solomon's colonnade. So it's probably where he's going to enter or where he, uh, okay, it's where he is going to enter in just a few months when he makes his triumphal entry. And you never know. He like goes to Jerusalem and then he goes and stays a little outside of Jerusalem each night and then he goes back each day. He might have entered that gate every single day that week. We don't know. It would make sense though from where he was traveling from. But the Eastern Gate, and this is also cool. If you're reading your Bible, the Eastern Gate still has a role to play in the story. And that's interesting because there is no temple and there is no eastern gate you know, you know what i'm saying mm. it's it has to something something has to happen change whatever i don't know i'm just throwing that out there not making any statements but anyway the jews and and i think it's fair at this point to just read that as the jewish leadership we know john plays with that phrase a lot well they were impatient this jesus was confusing them So they press him. Quit messing with us, man. Are you the Messiah or not? Just say it plainly. Now, Samuel, does this feel like a trap to you? Um, well, it doesn't, it just says the Jews in verse 24, so you could interpret that as potentially the Jewish leadership because we've looked at that previously or it could be common people too. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't think so. I mean, I feel like these guys are actually being just straight up. Dude, you're bugging us. Will you just tell us? (laughs) Just tell us. It doesn't appear to be much of a trap to me, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe... They're just trying to get him to say it out loud because then they'll be able to arrest him. So if it is a, if it is a trap, it's not a very good one. <laughs> but Jesus, you know, he's, he's still kind of frustrated with him. And he makes it plain. He makes it as plain as he is going to. Let me say it that way. And to be fair, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. It, it hasn't been as plain as it could be. I feel like Jesus could be more plain if he wanted to. But he says, I have told you. So from Jesus' perspective, 
He said all they need to hear to know. And then he says, I've done the works that bear witness. Well, okay, well, they've seen a bunch of works. And then he says, but you still won't believe. Right? Jesus has said enough, and God has testified on his behalf through signs, etc., all that stuff. And then Jesus, he, he kind of returns to an easy-to-understand symbol. Sheep and their shepherd. The sheep, well, they know that voice, the shepherd's voice. They follow it. And the shepherd, he knows his sheep. There is a familiarity. I mean, the shepherd's not just kind of looking around like, well, they all look the same to me. No, he he can actually recognize his own. There's a real familiarity. And so, you know, what's the point? These guys, the ones who are, Jesus, just tell us plainly, they're not his sheep. They don't recognize him. He doesn't recognize them. And it's why they haven't heard. It's why they haven't understood. And, and, and you know, it's what he's been saying all along. But funny about Jesus, he kind of gives them what they're asking for anyway. Again, indirectly. But he proclaims himself, check this out, Samuel. He proclaims himself the giver of life. Now, from a Jewish perspective, first century Jewish perspective, that is only God's purview. God and God alone. So if he's proclaiming himself the giver of life, he isn't saying he's just Messiah. He's saying, I am God in some sense. He proclaims, he follows that up with, you know, proclaiming a unity with God or a oneness with God. Now, again, I mean, this is, he is, boy, they asked for it and he gave it to them. If that doesn't say I am Messiah to them, I I really don't know what would. Now, to be fair, there's even a sense, and this is where it gets kind of crazy, it may have in some sense exceeded what they expected, exceeded what they were able to even understand or believe or whatever, because Messiah to them, they were expecting a human king. And this uh, not only was Jesus not being that, at the same time, he was proclaiming or claiming and doing so much more than that. And so even though he says all this stuff and it's it's like, oh my gosh, he said, he just told him he was God, you know, whatever. And at the same time, it's still not quite plain in that it it, it still brings some confusion. So, I don't know. I, I There's a part of me that just feels a little bit sorry for these guys. Not really, because I know they should have seen and understood, but I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. And Samuel, can I take a minute to pick on some people? Let me hold on to something. Does it make me a bad person? I'm not nah. a bad person. No. Nah. Not nah. See, here's the thing. Some people, they read this this sentence, this phrase, and it says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And they take that as if that is some sort of proof for, and there's so many phrases you could go by, either the the perseverance of the saints or uh, the once saved, always saved kind of thing. Okay, number one, let's admit something. Somewhere in all of this, there is a fair point 
of argument. In the New Testament scriptures, there is something to this idea of, I don't know, perseverance or something like that. And this phrase, no one will snatch them out of my hand, you know, it, it, it would be associated with that. You can see that. The problem is the mechanics of all of this, well, they're a bit fuzzy, and that's being generous. It's not plain. It's definitely not black and white. And even though we can see, okay, okay, there's something of this in the scriptures. Many people completely misunderstand it, misapply it, rip it mercilessly from its context or whatever. And and the bad part is it, it often ends up being treated like an insurance policy, right? Like fire insurance. I paid the fee that one time and now I'm covered for the fire. And this is where you get, well, it's not so true anymore because people fill out the things different. But there was a time when, my goodness, there'd be like 90% of Americans would would uh, classify themselves as Christians. And then you're just going, okay, but but the church isn't looking very Christ-like, so how can that be? And that that ends up being some of the result of this idea of once saved, always saved, and perseverance and all this stuff. It It takes away that personal responsibility, so it's kind of a bad thing. So I'm not going to sit here and say, there's no possible way that that verse could mean this. But I am going to say, I don't think it does. And I, I, I'm, I'm willing to enter into an argument because I don't think people that think it are crazy, but I just think there's a lot more to it and a lot more to be talked about. And boy, has it been damaging in the church in general. So anyway, hmm. I wasn't too mean, right? No, you did that. Bad. did that perfectly. Okay, see, there you go. Anyway, in this context, we can glean this. Whatever he's talking about, it's for his sheep. It's for the ones that hear his voice. It's for the ones that follow him. It's for the ones that he knows. Now, if that is you, I don't know if you caught this. When I said the word if, it was capitalized and in bold. If that is you, well, then guess what? You probably are safe. You probably were will persevere. You probably are once saved, always saved, right? Because you meet all of that kind of criteria, okay? But this might be a really, really good time for some honest self-examination. Not just you, me, all of us, all the time. This is emphasizing the character of an actual sheep as opposed to what would you call it like just the just the status of sheep like status would be something more like hey i said the prayer and i go to church on sunday i'm a sheep that's just a status kind of mentality whereas the uh character mentality is more like hey i daily willingly forfeit my life that you, Jesus, God, might live through me in all things. I am one of your sheep. So it's a very different, very different thing. It's also emphasizing the character and strength or ability of the shepherd, just by the way. It's kind of a neat thing. This shepherd's sheep, 
Okay, they are in no danger from lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. This shepherd can protect and care for the sheep perfectly, completely, eternally. And so we kind of put those two things together. If we we understand these things, these truths about the sheep and these truths about the shepherd, well, it kind of makes the whole doctrinal argument over perseverance, once saved, always, it kind of makes it a moot point. Whether it is true and accurate or not, understanding the nature of the sheep and the shepherd and, you know, sort of like responding to that, trying to to take on that nature of the sheep, that gives you all that you need to walk in trust and obedience, you know, like a sheep, and and you just, you be a sheep, and you trust the shepherd, done. Doctrinal argument over, moot. And honestly, so many of our doctrinal arguments are essentially like that. They're just, they're just a moot point. When I mean, like trying to know the exact details and mechanics of how God's working things out and all that stuff, it pales in comparison to just living as a faithful and true disciple. Now, should we seek to know and understand as much as we can? Of course, yes. There's a special kind of goodness in that. That there's knowledge it may enhance and enrich our faith. It's good. But you just got to remember, you're not going to be punished for being ignorant or wrong in pursuit of those things. If, if you walk in love and mercy and charity and justice, etc., you're going to be okay. And all the arguments over doctrine, you know, they just divide us. And, and tell me, Samuel, is, can anyone provide any kind of a valid argument for how things that divide us are a good thing? I mean, I'm a prime example of how those doctrinal arguments has wasted months, if not years, of my spiritual life. Like, it's just, it's not worth it. It's really not. Really not. All right. Any, any, boy, that was a big section. Comments, anything in there, Samuel? I think earlier, whenever you were talking about Jesus, like, subliminal, not subliminally, but he did answer their request to tell them plainly uh, by you po- by you pointing out uh, verse 28 by saying i give them life yeah. and how that's attributed to god in the jewish sense but uh, jesus i can't remember if you pointed this out but it ju- it doesn't just say i give them life like physical like in verse 28 i give them eternal life which yeah. that's just pushing the boundary even more um that that stuck out to me a lot because that that's like getting at and it, you know it may, it makes sense for this to be in John like if we go back to chapter 6 with the bread of life passage oh. what they were so irked about was him saying that I have come down from heaven which you know only God could do that so it, it's the same kind of feeling in the language here uh, in that particular verse. Yeah. Um, Good, yeah. And then the, uh, I guess I just, it's not anything you haven't already said. I just, if you you think about the first century or in some ways the patriarchal 
ancient culture and how shepherding was such an ingrained aspect in their culture and lives and how Jesus is using that here to talk about those that are following God. Like you said, it just takes the weight out of what evangelicalism has made of this passage. Like when I read through it, it it just feels like Jesus is saying like, guys, like think about sheep. They are 100% completely dependent upon the security that the the shepherd can offer them in the wilderness, in the wild, in the desert. Like there are, there are legitimate threats when ancient shepherds are leading their sheep out in the wild. You have, like you said, lions, bears, other predators, like other um, humans that are trying to steal sheep, whatever. Um, but, but Jesus is saying, like, they have to depend on that shepherd for their navigation, for their sustenance, for their provision. And he's saying, like, as long as you are, if that is who you are putting your dependence in, then you're good. Like, you have nothing to worry about, just yeah. like those sheep. Uh, uh, yeah, I just... It, it makes it feel lighter. And that's the funny thing. I, I I honestly believe that all of these things that we're sharing, and everybody, I'm sure, knows if, if they heard like our, our intro episode and all that kind of stuff, it's not like we're making all these interpretations up. We gather this stuff together. We look for the best info. But the funny thing is, the interpretations that we bring through this podcast, honestly, they make everything so much more simple than it is in many other circumstances. It, it, they just complicate it, trying to make it work. And, and this, it, like what you were saying, that just kind of feels lighter. It feels better. It feels good. That, that's a little more natural. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. So it's good. Now, okay, so Jesus was, I mean, he was laying it on him, right? That was kind of a heavy deal. And Samuel, I got to tell you, miraculously, these Jews, well, they were convinced, and they all just kind of walked away, arm in arm, friends for life. Not. <laughs> no. So say, something feels a little weird here. No, they didn't. Let's see what happened. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verses 31 to 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, <laughs> and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, in case you were wondering if they really were interpreting it the way we said? <laughs> well, there you go. He, they think he's making himself out to be God, which, guess what? We kind of know that that's true. So, whatever. It's a good thing. So, they want to stone him. And again, remember remember where he's at. John, he's, he's got Jesus in Solomon's colonnade. Now, it's highly unlikely that there were stones just laying around in there. Or uh, it's also highly unlikely that they would ever actually try to carry out a stoning in any part of the temple. So I'm pointing that out just to go, you know what? There's more happening here 
than we actually get to see in the text. We've talked about this before. Sometimes the text seems very detailed, and yet at the same time, it's like it's got so much room for us to build the imagery in our head. And so there's a lot going on here. You'd have to think almost almost to the point of they'd have to try to rush him outside, you know, where the rocks are, and then stone him out there. It's just, it, it's interesting. But anyway, Jesus wants to highlight the absurdity of what they are doing. And, you know, obviously, they can't see it. So he starts with what appears to be, I don't know, it's like intentional misdirection, right? They want to stone him. Come on, he's Jesus. Do you think he knows why they want to stone him even before they say it out loud? Mm. Probably. But what's he do? Well, I've done a lot of different good works, guys. Uh, Works that were obviously from God. So I'm just wondering, which one of those exactly is it that you're going to be stoning me for? He knew that wasn't what they were doing, but he's... He's pushing the absurdity. Think of what you're doing. You want to stone me, and you have seen me do all of these works from God. Does that not even give you pause? It's, it's kind of cool. But of course, that isn't what had them upset. And Samuel, what do people do when they're really upset? They do stupid things. <laughs> so remember, He had proclaimed himself to be the giver of life, (laughs) something that belonged to God and God alone. He proclaimed unity and oneness with God. So to them, I mean, dude, this is a slam dunk. He is a blasphemer. He's making himself, whom they consider to be a mere man, and I'm going to say, understandably to a point, He's making himself equal to God. In fact, from their perspective, he's not just making himself equal with God. He's making himself God. It's, I mean, they are just, they are flabbergasted. This is pretty, pretty crazy. So just put yourself in your, I'm sorry, put yourself in their shoes just for a second. And it doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong or whatever. You can see, at the very least, you can see why this would have been upsetting to them. This was was a big deal. However, we've seen that Jesus, I'm sorry, how do I say this? Okay, they're upset because he's made himself equal with God. But I just want to clarify, we've seen Jesus in the past, how he seems to want to communicate it differently. He seems to consider himself subordinate to the Father in everything. So they see equality. He sees unity with subordination. It's kind of a different thing. The equality that Jesus is speaking of, it's, it's, it's the unity or the oneness. It's being in sync. It's being in tune with God, aligning of wills, you might say. And here's the, here's the cool thing. When Jesus does this, when he really tries to highlight this idea that he is human and he might be one with God, he might be in unity with God, but he's still subordinate to God and all that. When he does that, he's actually giving something to every human. 
something that they can aspire to, something that they should aspire to, right? And this is that thing when it's like, I don't know if people really quite understand when I say this. That's why Jesus didn't do stuff in his God power. He did stuff in his human power with the aid of the Holy Spirit. And that is so, so good for us to see because that puts us, you know, kind of in an equal position. We're just humans but we have access to the Holy Spirit, we too can live in sync, in tune, aligned wills with God. And, and I don't know, I, to me, that is, that's life motivation right there. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, I definitely hear what you're saying about this oneness that Jesus is referencing has to do with unity, being in sync, being in tune. And, my brain, whenever I hear of oneness, goes back the, to the uh, the Shema in the Torah in Deuteronomy. I think it's in six, chapter six, um, about you know, hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And I guess I'm trying to, I'm I'm having trouble connecting. It's been a while since I've studied the, about the Shema, like. What do Jews say that God is saying in the Shema when he says, you know, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, when like their concept of Trinity maybe wasn't as fleshed out as it is for Protestantism for us here centuries later? Yeah, and that is a really interesting topic because you can see a very real and definite line in history. Post-Jesus, there's a very hard stance that when it says the Lord our God is one, they mean singular, and they mean he can't be a trinity. That's the prevailing thinking. Prior to Jesus, it was much more flexible. And this whole idea of oneness, instead of being uh, the idea of singular, it was the idea of perfect unity. Uh, That was actually fairly prominent throughout Judaism, uh, thinking, interpretation, whatever. Now, the thing was, they, they didn't, they didn't, talk about it as if, you know, like, like the way that we talk about a trinity, okay? So they, they didn't ever really talk in that language exactly, but th- th- think of all these concepts, Samuel. You have God, and then you have the Word of God. It's this agent that, that comes into creation, but it's not God himself, and yet it is God. It's in perfect unity with him. That's a thing. All of this these ideas were prevalent, so it's actually changed over time. And I guess partly what we see in this is maybe the genesis of the hard line that exists now that says, nope, God is one, and that means singular, and don't mess with it. You guys are crazy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's, it, you saying that racked my brain a little bit um, because I, I'm pretty sure I've 
listened and read about some things in Jewish thought that, like, trying to make it as uh, less a trigger word as possible, like trying to get to the original intent context that oneness could also mean, like, that God is intimately connected to his creation Mm -hmm. um, and how directly following this phrase in Deuteronomy 6 about the Lord being God, the Lord being one, um, it it then gives a a declaration of what the people are supposed to do in verses 5 and 6 about like, you know, love the Lord your God with everything that you have in your being, love yeah. your neighbor as yourself, and like there's this relationship at play here, I think, with it's like if God is with you and intimately connected with his creation, which includes you, then that should motivate you to like l- learn about him, follow him, be obedient to him. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, that's just interesting that here in John, that baggage wasn't present the way that it is post his death and resurrection, yet they still. Like they kind of react in that same way, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, yeah, good question. Yeah, anything else on that? I don't think so. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but because we're talking about stoning, I think about some of the silly things when I was a teenager. I I saw like uh, Monty Python, Life of Brian, mm-hmm. uh, and it was a. Uh, uh, well, it had some stuff in there. They were going to stone people. And they had this little scene where uh, they were trying to buy some rocks to to go to the stoning with. And he's like, yeah, I'll take uh, some of the round ones and, and one of those pointy ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so ridiculously silly. But uh, yeah, good childhood memories. <laughs> <laughs> Can't really recommend it to anyone anymore, but it was funny then. <laughs> It's a it's a good thing to laugh about in passing as we that's, move along. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Samuel, we are not going to make it through any more sections, so you know what? We are done for today. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about us and the podcast at our website, www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to send us any questions or comments to our email address, okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.